I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the Employee Retention Tax Credit. During the pandemic, Congress created the Employee Retention Tax Credit, a payroll tax credit designed to incentivize businesses to retain and pay their employees during shutdowns. In today's episode, we explain the details of the credit and we highlight recent academic research into the firms that chose to publicly disclose the fact that they benefited from the incentive. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. We are back in the land of the tax credits today. We are. And gotta say, it's a pretty nice place to be. It is. I mean, it's not as nice as like Disneyland or Legoland, but it's still nice. Sure. Okay. Business idea. Tax land. She's just, people, listeners, she's just looking at me. <laughs> she's she's speechless. I'm, I'm getting a look right now. So let me just continue. I was afraid to ask and I, I thought it might just go away if I didn't say anything. And um, I, I, I don't know you well enough, clearly, because you were just going to continue regardless. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, has that literally ever worked before? I'm an optimist, at okay. least relatively speaking. Okay. So hear me out. It'd be a theme park. Okay. Like Disneyland, but it would be tax themed. Okay. Okay. So it could be like the Magic Kingdom. And you know, the Magic Kingdom, we've got like Frontierland and uh, Future World and Adventureland. There's the Magic Kingdom has the different lands, there's right? There's a few lands. Okay. Okay. So we would just have like gross income land and tax deduction land, credit land, exemption land. And the gift shops would sell things like 10 keys yeah. and green visors and tax prep software and CDs of us rewriting the words of rap songs to make them about taxes. Yes. And there could be like characters, like the tax fairy. Yes. And the, and, and she like helps you timely file your return and maximize your refund. Absolutely. And there could also be villains. Sure. You've got to have villains. Of course. So we could have like unreasonable tax agents who try to deny your legitimate deductions. They don't exist. Well, it's, it's, it's make-believe, Lisa. Come on, work with me. Fair. All right. And then, okay, you got to have food, right? So we have to have tax-themed food offerings as well. You, you had me at food. Okay. So we could have maybe, okay, an ice cream shop called the Internal Revenue Cone. <laughs> okay. Or, um, okay, a, a bakery called Capital Grains. This, this would be the happiest place on earth. For some people. For us. For us. <laughs> For two people. <laughs> and that's all that matters. Okay, so today we're going to have to imagine what credit land would be like mm-hmm. as we discuss the Employee Retention Tax Credit, or ERTC. So let's start with a discussion of the credit's details. And I think in order to do that, we're going to have to back up a little bit further and Let's start with the policy objectives of credits. Generally speaking, big question, looking at you, go. What I told my students is taxes aren't all bad. Tax policy isn't always a bad thing. Right. Yes, we know that taxes are primarily intended to raise revenue to fund government operations, but they can also be used to incentivize certain desired behaviors. In this case, the desired behavior we're talking about was having businesses retain and pay their workforce during the COVID-19 pandemic, even when their employees weren't working for them because their operations had been shut down. 
And that's clearly a desirable objective. Yes. Right? Like having this large swath of the workforce lose their jobs clearly would be detrimental. Uh, lost employment often means things like lost health insurance, mm-hmm. which is not so great in the middle of, say, a health, health crisis. crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Laying off a large portion of the workforce could also be costly for businesses. Mm-hmm. So in the early days of the pandemic, it we we did not know how long things would be shut down. Remember when we were told two weeks, if we all just stayed home for two weeks? Yep. Mm-hmm. Why be all over? And here we are over two years later. So Congress developed the Employee Retention Tax Credit. And at a very high level, the credit offered the possibility of an immediate tax benefit to companies' cash flow mm-hmm. to companies that paid their employees while simultaneously experiencing either a government-ordered shutdown of their business or just a significant decline in their gross receipts. Okay. And I have to say that we criticize tax policy a fair amount on this podcast, but in my opinion, I think this was a pretty well-designed incentive. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it has some pretty logical features. You know, whereas many tax credits are income tax credits, this employee retention tax credit was a refundable payroll tax credit. So that's a very different beast. And why don't you tell us a little bit about why that matters? Absolutely. So I'll start with the refundable part. Business income tax credits are non-refundable. So let me say that again. Business income tax credits, credits that are going to offset your income tax liability tend to be non-refundable. And what that means is that if a business doesn't have any income tax liability for the year, or if that income tax liability isn't at least as large as the credit that they qualify for, Mm -hmm. then they're not going to be able to immediately benefit from the credit fully to the fullest extent. And that scenario was pretty likely to happen during the pandemic. This is begging for an example. All right. So say you own a restaurant, not me, because I would never own a restaurant, but say you own- Your spouse would. Say my husband owns a restaurant. There you go. And it had to shut down during the pandemic. Let's also say that he wasn't equipped for takeout or delivery during the early days of the pandemic, like many restaurants. All right, so his sales or his gross income was essentially zero. Right. But let's say that he still had $10,000 in monthly expenses like rent and utilities. And so that would mean that he would have had a taxable loss of $10,000. And if you have a loss, you don't currently owe any income tax. Makes sense. So if Congress had made the employee retention tax credit on income tax credit, then his business would not have gotten any immediate benefit. So making the credit refundable meant money went into the hands of businesses immediately. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, making it a payroll tax credit was also pretty clever because it tied the incentive to the activity that it was exactly meant to incentivize. Yep. Paying your workforce, even if they weren't working for you. So there is a lot to like about this so far, but it is not all bunnies and hay. Not at all surprised to see Stormy Bear over here. Her name is actually Grumpy Bear. Okay. But yes, she does have a storm cloud belly badge. I don't know what that means, but continue. Okay. So the less than ideal part of the credit's design came mostly when Congress amended and expanded the credit late in 2020. You're going to argue that an expansion of a credit you like is a bad thing? I am. Does that confuse you? A little. Are you surprised by this? Not at all. Okay. It is 100% on brand. So Congress expanded the potential benefit and increased the number of potentially eligible businesses, which means more businesses had an incentive to take advantage of the credit. 
And if you're wondering about that confused look on my face, it's because I still haven't heard a bad part of all this. Okay, so Congress did this while at the same time not providing a ton of guidance as to what qualifies as a, quote, substantial disruption in business activity. And anytime the rules are vague. Ah, they are ripe for abuse. I am seeing the point now. I get it. All right, so you've got a large economic incentive to take advantage of a credit. The parameters of how you do that are not clearly defined, and it's all being administered by a resource-constrained agency. Yep, mm-hmm, recipe for mm-hmm, something. Something. And as a result of this something, our employee retention tax credit land has become sort of like the wild, wild west. So anyway, you've got some practitioners offering to help businesses claim credits that actually might be illegitimate. It's so bad that the IRS has extended the statute of limitations to audit these claims to five years from the standard three years just to give themselves more time to identify and audit potentially bogus claims. Oosh. Okay, so this is starting to kind of sound like those payment protection loans. But a key difference between the PPP and the employee retention tax credit is that claiming the employee retention tax credit was confidential, Mm. whereas a list of PPP recipients was publicized. And that didn't go so well. No. Companies like Shake Shack and Ruth Chris were criticized in the press for even taking PPP loans, largely because they were viewed as diverting aid from more deserving businesses. So do you think the list of businesses that claim the ERTC should also have been publicized? That is a great question and one that I hope our guest can answer. Ooh. Our guest today is Stefan Richter, a doctoral student in accounting at Indiana University. Prior to entering the PhD program, Stefan worked as a tax manager at an S&P 500 company, as well as spent several years at a big four accounting firm. He has experience working on several tax incentive projects, and his research to date focuses on firms' disclosures of these incentives. Stefan will graduate in the coming academic year and look for a position as a faculty member. He's here today to talk about his dissertation, which examines the association between companies' choice to voluntarily disclose that they benefited from the employee retention tax credit and their reputation. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, tell us a little bit about the requirements about around disclosing the employee retention tax credit. Yeah, so during 2020 and 2021, there was no specific accounting guidance regarding disclosures of the ERTC. However, firms are required to disclose information if it is considered to be material to the financial statement. So material information is considered financial information that has the potential to alter the view of a reasonable person. I love that all of this hinges on a reasonable person as if that that person actually exists out there in the world. Certainly not here on this podcast. I was just going to say there are three reasonable people right here on this podcast. (laughs) True to form, we disagree completely. So Stefan, as we've mentioned, your dissertation is focusing on the link between a firm's reputation and their propensity to disclose this credit. And so can you talk a little bit about why you think that a firm's reputation may have played in to that decision to, you know, claim a material credit that you know you're going to have to disclose or maybe to voluntarily disclose a credit that's immaterial? Why do you think reputation mattered in those decisions? Yeah, so if we look at the specific requirements that large firms had to meet in order to claim the ERTC, 
Congress required the firm to retain and pay non-working employees during the COVID-19 pandemic. So we remember back to those days when we were in the midst of the pandemic, there was a significant amount of economic uncertainty and individuals were fearful of losing their jobs. In fact, many companies laid off workers. Mm-hmm. And so workers represent one of the firm's key assets. So taking care of workers during the pandemic could positively create goodwill and positive relations between the firm and its employees. We also have recent evidence that suggests shareholders are interested in human capital information. As such, managers possibly anticipated that there could that they could use disclosures of this credit to credibly highlight beneficial actions taken towards the firm's employees. So one of the things that's a little bit different about this particular tax incentive is that to get it, you had to do something nice for your employees, which is different than a lot of tax benefits that companies claim for other things where it's quite possible that they take that tax benefit and, you know, it's the high paid executives who are pocketing it. So in the tax literature, we actually have a lot of evidence suggesting the opposite, right? That a firm that cares about its reputation might be less likely to take advantage of a tax benefit. But you've identified a pretty unique situation where the only way you could get the tax benefit was to do something nice for your human capital, as you've explained it. And so this might be a setting where we actually find a little bit of a different result than what we've seen in some other tax avoidance research. Yeah, exactly. I think the tying this credit or the ability to claim this credit so directly to the employment outcomes, I think, could potentially reverse that negative association that we traditionally see between a firm's reputation and its tax avoidance. So tell us a little bit about how you test your hypothesis. Yeah, so my, my overall research question that I, that I addressed in my dissertation is, are firms with historically negative employment practices more likely to disclose this credit? So I specifically focus on firms with poor employee-related records because evidence suggests actions that harm employees result in reputational costs and declines in firm value. As such, the incentive to communicate beneficial actions taken towards employees to shareholders, which the credit does demonstrate, is greater for these firms. So can you give us some examples of like how what types of firms are they? What what are they doing that that was evidence that they didn't have good practices before? Great question. Yeah, so I measure firms with historically negative employment practices as firms that commit employee-related regulatory penalties. So these are going to be OSHA violations related to having unsafe working conditions or Department of Labor violations related to improper pay or other source of wage issues. Interesting. And you also have another pretty clever measure that's more directly tied to the pandemic and layoffs during the pandemic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, motivated by prior research that shows firms suffer reputational damage following layoff announcements, I use a measure of whether or not the firm received media coverage in Mm. previous quarters about layoffs to see if these firms were also more likely to disclose the credit. Got it. So firms that have basically been uh, caught behaving badly, or whether that's by the, the media or by a regulator, Um, So perhaps they have more incentive to wave their hands and call as much attention as possible to the fact that they're trying to do something nice for employees. Yeah, exactly. I think there's definitely this incentive for managers of these firms to show their shareholders that they're trying to take beneficial actions towards their employees. So what do you find? Tell us a little bit about your results. So across the multiple measures of firms with poor employment practices, I find that these firms are significantly more likely to disclose the employee retention tax credit. That's pretty cool. What would you say are some of the biggest takeaways of your study? 
There are certain tax strategies that firms possibly want to highlight given the societal benefits that these tax strategies can provide. My research also complements recently published research that shows shareholders respond positively to these tax strategies that provide societal benefits. And lastly, my study also provides policymakers with some information concerning how to increase the uptake of tax incentives, which at times are underutilized by firms. So enacting tax incentives that more directly benefit other stakeholder groups beyond investors could result in greater uptake of these incentives. I was going to say, we just talked a lot about the benefits of this credit, but we don't want to make it sound like this credit is all bunnies and hay, as I like to say. So you and I both saw an article in Accounting Today recently. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so there's a report that came out stating that there's been about $2 trillion of fraud with illegitimate companies that are claiming this benefit. And so $2 trillion is a significant amount of money, as I think Congress had only appropriate about or expected about $80 billion uh, of this credit. So this is quite significant. And I do think what, what I understand from doing research on my dissertation, I think these are primarily going to be smaller companies that are fraudulently claiming the credit. And that's because in order to claim the credit for smaller companies, you didn't have to retain and pay your workers, but rather mm-hmm. as long as you're, you could claim the credit on any wages paid to employees, as long as you're meeting one of the two economic condition tests. So do you think that the list of firms should have been made public? To the extent that taxpayers' dollars are being used uh, to fund these programs, maybe some more transparent information could be provided by the IRS. Maybe you don't have to name every firm, uh, but the IRS only provides aggregated information about the credit, the number, the total number of claimants, and the total aggregate dollar value. So I think, you know, as concerned taxpayers, we should want to know where our money is going. And while you maybe don't have to disclose every recipient, you know, providing some more granular information, I think would help us better understand the efficacy of the program and just help us learn, you know, whether or not our money is being used in, in good ways. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we let you get back to your dissertation? So starting in 2022, firms are now subject to specific disclosure requirements for government assistance, of which the ERTC falls. Interesting. Do you know anything about the impetus behind that change in disclosure? Yeah, so the impetus behind these disclosure changes is that stakeholders, I think including investors, but also the public, given the funding of these government assistance programs, wanted to know more about who's claiming these benefits, uh, especially relates to public companies and the amount that they were benefiting from these, subsidi- from these subsidies. Interesting. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your dissertation. And good luck on the market. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. So an easy good here, right? Mm -hmm. Welcoming another PhD student to talk about their dissertation. It really is fun to talk to people at the start of their research careers when they have not been completely, let's say, obliterated by the review process yet. They're like research babies. Also a good thing to be able to discuss a tax policy that, for the most part, was well-designed. See, there you go saying you like it again, even though you didn't like it. I mean, I liked liked some of it. Okay. 
So I agree. The intent was good, right? Congress brought their A game in, in a sense, which is especially impressive given the pressure they were operating under to design pandemic relief. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea how long it was going to go on and how bad it was going to be. The bad isn't really about the policy so much as it is about taxpayers exploiting the policy. I agree with that 100%. I think that any negativity that I have is not over the design of the policy. It's about a subsequent lack of guidance, a lack of enforcement, which allows bad taxpayers to, to do shady things. So the bad here is clearly the taxpayers and tax practitioners pretty much took advantage of the fact that Congress and Treasury had to work quickly to design the policy and really didn't have the luxury of all of these months or years to draft regulations and issue guidance mm -hmm. to clarify some of the important elements. And it's really gross to see because it's a total cash grab for these companies that don't qualify. For the companies that took it during the pandemic and were actually paying their employees, great, kudos, way to take advantage of much needed liquidity. It's these companies that are now after the fact filing refund claims, some of which are probably totally bogus, that that's clearly just a cash grab. And we know we've got businesses coming in, firms coming in and taking a percentage of that. Yeah, not, not pretty. So I'm hopeful that with some of its new funding, the IRS can go after these businesses and practitioners who filed illegitimate claims. But as we talked about with Stefan, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. Yeah. So this whole thing just makes me think of my tax professor at the University of Florida, Jesse Boyles, who used to say, pigs get to eat, but hogs get slaughtered. So I would make a disparaging comment about Florida right now, except my Texan spouse says that all the time. Does he really? Yeah. Okay. So that leaves the ugly which I think Stefan's dissertation explores in a really nice way. So this notion that companies claiming tax benefits for legitimate reasons have to think about their reputations when deciding whether to disclose that fact to shareholders. Absolutely, because you know, as a shareholder, I would think you would want to know what a company is doing from a tax planning perspective. You want them to be transparent. Mm -hmm. But if managers are reluctant to be forthcoming about tax issues because they believe they're going to be targeted by the press or by activist groups who don't always um, get it exactly right. Absolutely. Then they might withhold useful information. It reminds me of being a parent. And if you want your kid to tell you the bad things that they do, you can't always flip out when they tell you something bad. Mm -hmm. Not only that, um, they might be reluctant to take advantage of the incentive in the first place. Mm -hmm. We've both heard tax professionals say that they sometimes leave tax money on the table, money that they 100% qualify for. Yep. There is no question as to legality, but they fear what taking it might do to their reputations. Yeah, one practitioner I spoke to implied that sometimes they feel like they're being tricked. Mm. Congress creates these incentives or programs like loans during the financial crisis or PPP loans, and then people in Congress turn around and attack companies for taking advantage of the incentives that they, or at least their fellow Congresspersons, Congresspeople, Congresshumans. Yes. Created. Life is hard for a tax exec. So true. Life is hard for a tax professor. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you there. <laughs> Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.